0: Hello and welcome to the 7th Series Podcast, where we talk about Ashtanga Yoga and family life. The show is produced in Melbourne, Australia, by me, your host, Gaynor Stanisich. Hello and thanks for joining us. In today's show, I talk to Kirsten. She's a Level
1: 2 Authorised Ashtanga Yoga teacher and is living in Sydney, Australia. Kirsten talks us through her pregnancy, birth and postpartum recovery. She goes into detail with how she practiced during her pregnancy including modifications and then her postpartum recovery and journey back to the mat. Kirsten also talks us through her birth in its rawness with a level of detail which I'm sure will be great for those who are preparing for their own
0: birth. I hope you enjoy today's show.
1: Hi Kirsten, how are you? Uh, Hi
2: Gayna, so nice to be on your podcast.
1: Do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you live, what you do and who's in your family? So I live in Sydney, Australia. My first
2: profession actually isn't even yoga teaching, it is marine biology. And then about 12 years ago, I started practicing Ashtanga and then became an Ashtanga teacher a little bit further down the track through all my trips to Mysore. I guess I have two professions that are run parallel marine biology and Ashtanga yoga teaching. And today I'm a level two authorized Ashtanga yoga teacher. My partner and I, we both live in Sydney, and um, we have one son, Jai. He's eight months old, so it's only three of us in the family at the moment. Andrew is my partner, Jai and myself.
1: Can you share with us how you first came to Ashtanga Yoga? I was just going
2: about having a regular vinyasa flow slash hartha practice back in the day and this is more than 12 years ago now so for a few years i was just dropping in and out of some yoga classes that were locally available in sydney it was mainly just to find something outside of a very stressful phd that i was doing in marine biology and i found the yoga that i was doing at the time really supportive in helping myself to breathe staying calm but after a few years of doing that i felt very... I guess lost in some way I felt that there was more to a yoga practice and those classes were giving me and I felt I was really looking for something and I wasn't quite sure what that was that I was looking for until I was talking to a friend and this friend of mine mentioned Ashtanga yoga to me and I said oh I don't really know what Ashtanga yoga is the person just said look why don't you drop into an Ashtanga class so I went onto the net and I had a look where I could practice Ashtanga and back in the day there wasn't a lot of information out on Ashtanga so this is 2008 and I went to buy a book in a bookstore and that was John Scott's book and the primary series and I picked up the book looked at the poses and I thought okay this looks good and I remember turning up to my first Ashtanga yoga class in Sydney on Oxford Street Took the book with me, didn't tell anyone that I'd never done Ashtanga. Um, rocked up to a Meissa Style class and just started practicing primary series. And soon enough, of course, I couldn't remember what the next pose was, so I was copying the person next to me. And at that point, I don't know if it was very obvious to the teacher at the time if I was copying the other person or not, probably was. So I just was so taken up by the fact that everyone else was breathing and knew what they were doing. I was fascinated. I saw all these bodies. Breathing, moving. I heard the chant for the first time, I had goosebumps. I somehow knew I was onto something really different, something that really agreed with me. And that's how I found Ashtanga yoga. In the first class, I knew this was something I really wanted to take up and investigate further. So that was 2008. That is 12 years. The first year where I started Ashtanga, I went straight to Mysore. And I never regret that I did go so early because that was really something that I found valuable for me to connect to Mysore so early in my practice that was something that meant a lot to me to connect to the origin where it came from right from the start. On my first trip um, to Mysore in 2008 I also met Eileen Hall in Mysore even though I knew she lived um, where I was living in Sydney in Bondi and Mark Roberts was there as well and he introduced me to Eileen. I ended up coming back after my first trip to Mysore to Sydney and um, started practicing with Eileen.
1: When you went to Mysore for the first time, was that in 2008 or 2009? That was in the second half of 2008,
2: and Patavi Joyce at that stage was still alive. He wasn't health-wise, he wasn't so well, but I I met him, and he passed away mid-year, the year after. By that stage, Shirat was teaching at that time, and Patabi Joyce would walk in and out of the Shala here and then when his health would allow him. And so there was still some exposure to him, but teaching was all done by Sharad at that time. So I was purely Sharad's student from the start. And even the first year I practiced with Saraswati, so my first trip was actually in the main Shala. Back in the day, it was so that Sharad would finish teaching at a certain time and it would overlap with Saraswati starting to teach. So the students would both be together in the Shala. That was my first trip. And then every trip thereafter, I've done seven trips to Mysore. Every trip thereafter was with Cheryl. And quite long trips too, several months at a time. Some of them, some of them were only one month and some of them there three
1: months at a time. Wow. We don't always have that time.
2: <laughs> and thinking back now, I obviously was not a mother back then. And I only realized now, I guess the grass is always greener on the other side. When I was single, floating around the world. I was like, how great would it be to have a family? And now thinking, not that I don't want to have a family, but I go like, oh my God, how much free time did I have to dedicate to all these things that I did or could have done and have done and didn't appreciate to the fullest back then how great freedom can be as well. But yeah, grass is always greener on the other side, isn't it?
1: That we also have those ideals that, oh, we'll just take our family with us to soul when we go.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And that can work too. But, um, yeah, there's a lot more to consider. And don't get me wrong, I would never want to change my family back to not having one because it's also the biggest gift that you can have or I feel that I could have had. This life, I certainly do have to consider now a lot more things. And I did have that thought that, yeah, once he's born, I can just peg him into a suitcase and we're off to Mysore. And now I'm, of course, sitting there thinking, do I need to have him immunized to go? What would it be like for him to be there? Is the temperature okay for him? Is the food okay for him? Well, he's breastfed, so that's probably okay. All these other things. What is my partner doing? Can we both leave? Do I want to leave without my partner? Do I want my partner to come with me? How are we going to organize it? So there's suddenly so many more factors. And I'm sure there's a lot of things we can make work if we really, really want it. We definitely as mothers or parents need to consider a lot more things that we probably didn't think of before when we first had this romantic view of having a baby
1: what then led you towards teaching I was
2: training to become a regular hatha vinyasa flow teacher that was before I really found ashtanga and so there there was always an interest in teaching right from the start but of course when I then found ashtanga it was almost like being a beginner all over again and then although I had looked into and started teaching a different style of yoga before I Then just became a student again. And all I wanted to do is really practice Ashtanga. It was never so much of a thought for me to become an Ashtanga teacher. It was more that it happened organically. I was traveling to Mysore. I wanted to deepen my practice. I was completely immersed in practicing, doing all these other additional studies, reading books, wanting to learn um, about the yoga sutras and chanting and all these other things. And it was when I probably felt happiest and most emerged in my practice that Sharat came up to me one day and asked me if I wanted to teach. Back in the day, I was practicing two thirds of intermediate So he authorized me level one and two thirds of intermediate as well. And then a couple of years later, we changed that to full intermediate series because at that time I had only practiced up until Karandavasana. And finally, when I finished intermediate, we updated the authorization level two. And it wasn't anything that I had really planned at the time. So I guess it found me rather than me trying to seek it.
1: Do you remember when you took your first
2: class? So I started teaching in 2008 already, Vinyasa Flow, but then I stopped teaching as I found Ashtanga because right. then I was like, well, I can't really practice one thing but teach another. It just didn't seem right and authentic to me. So then Ashtanga teaching was, I think, in 2014. So I started covering basically Programs outside of Australia in countries like Thailand and Bali, and then also in Germany in Cologne. I came to um, teach at your previous studio in Perth. Yeah, it was a great experience to get to teach in different places, covering other people's programs at first, and then in Bali, I started off a new Mysore program in Seminyak. So there were many years of filling in, filling in for Eileen when she went away for a few days. Did you also do an apprenticeship? I have never been on an apprenticeship with Eileen, no. It was quite funny. I was teaching in all these different places. I lived in Adelaide in Australia and South Australia for a while as well. So I was away from Sydney and as I came back and was established as a teacher, mainly covering other people's programs whenever there was a need. So I had already a fair bit of Teaching experience when I came back to practice with Eileen again. So it was then a logical flow from there that whenever Eileen was going away from a weekend, she sometimes asked me if I could cover her program for hers.
1: Big shoes to fill oh, yeah. for yeah, <laughs> so, uh.
2: She knowingly would never tell anyone that she was going just in case the students decided not to turn up. So usually we were thrown into situations that everybody expected Eileen to be there and suddenly you would stand up there leading the chant. Very big shoes to fill, but also amazing students that are appreciative of having somebody else there. I felt very warmly welcomed.
1: You also mentioned when you were covering programs Germany and Cologne and people will probably hear that you do have an accent
2: <laughs> German origin so I was born in Germany I grew up in Germany as well and it wasn't until it was about 2021 that I came to Australia so thinking back of that now I should also reveal um, my age I'm currently 44 years old um, I felt pregnant when I was 43 years old I'm, I'm more on the older side not the younger side and I gave birth when I was 44 and so So the first half of my life I spent in Germany and the second half I spent in Australia.
1: So when did you decide to have a baby? Yeah, um, it was about two years into
2: the relationship. Organically, we started thinking, wouldn't it be nice to have a child together? And from that first conversation um, to us actually planning a a few more months passed and then we were like, okay, let's see what happens. And from like, let's see what happens, we went like, Actually, we would really love a child. And then we, we started planning it a bit more firmly. And it took us another, from really properly aiming to fall pregnant, it took us another few months still for me to actually fall pregnant. So it was a bit of a lead up from, okay, we loosely try then to, for me to get a phone app and track my ovulation on a phone app, not realizing how inaccurate a phone application was that would average all the women out there and give me some sort of average ovulation date Mm -hmm. when I then went on to measure my ovulation with a urinary strip from the pharmacy you know one of those strips where you can pee on them and find out when you're ovulating when I did that I actually found out that it was ovulating at a totally different time so once we knew when I was ovulating I guess that is really when we then started properly trying for me to fall pregnant and it took another four months pretty much after that we were a little bit impatient at that point because as you know I wasn't young and still am um, not getting younger <laughs> so I, I was a bit impatient I guess where other people might try for six months or a year to fall pregnant I was thinking maybe we should hurry up so um, we started just looking into IVF procedures and wondering if we should go down that path but then I
1: fell pregnant that is handy. It all fell into place. Yeah, at the right yeah, time. Exactly.
2: So about four months into really trying, um, it then happened, and I guess I'm very lucky because when you then go and look into the statistics, it's um, given my age. It's like a steep cliff once you hit forties, and your chances of falling pregnant. And I know everyone is different, but. When we had this initial consultation with doctors, they were saying, oh, you have a very, very low chance to fall pregnant. So I feel very, very lucky.
1: And what was happening in your practice at that time? Were you amping up and trying to get in in as much as you could before you became pregnant or did you ease off? Like, Were there any changes in your practice during that time? Actually,
2: there were, and um, I was at that time practicing advanced A, so third series, uh, most of that, and the first few months where we tried falling pregnant, I was doing my usual practice advanced A almost every morning, and that month when I felt pregnant, I actually had made the decision to return to just practicing primary. I was practicing full primary at the time, and for. Some people, I guess, that might be a pretty strong practice, but because I was practicing or being used to um, a really strong practice, um, I, I felt like that was quite relaxing for me to go back to full primary at the time. I mean, now it feels a bit different. I mean, now full primary can feel a bit more intense for me now, but um, back in the day um, it felt easy. So, yeah, I had full-on backed-off practice um, during that time. And I had done that on purpose because I was also in all my thoughts about why am I not falling pregnant besides the statistics of it being less likely at my age. I also read books and I found this book from Krishna Macharya saying that all the postures with leg behind the head would not be very good for conceiving. So I then thought, well, the first part of Advanced A is a lot of leg behind head postures. So I thought maybe not a good thing and that's when I thought I should probably return to a softer practice and that's what I did and that was the month I felt pregnant. Now, if that has anything to do with it, um, I wouldn't know, but it was that one month where I went back to primary, um, practising primary when I felt pregnant.
1: It's interesting you wonder if it was – that when you soften that it allows that opportunity for the pregnancy to happen or it was just the timing or, yeah, very interesting.
2: My intuition is that in, in my case it did help and I think everyone is very different and I have heard of people who have had at the point where their practice was the strongest they felt pregnant. I think in my case because mm. I was also in a full-time marine biology job at the time I was stressed. I did my practice early in the morning. I would go to work all day afterwards. I would come home. I would go to bed. I would get up and practice. I had an hour commute uh, by car to workplace. I felt that lightening my practice and softening did, in my case, really help. And I I suppose every situation is different. But in my case, I, I feel it really made it possible for me to fall pregnant.
1: So when you were pregnant, what did you do with your practice then? Well, because we were trying
2: for me to fall pregnant, I also, of course, at any sign that I could be pregnant, I was running off doing a pregnancy test. So um, I knew quite early that I had fallen pregnant and I was really excited about it. And it was almost at the same time when I found out through a pregnancy test that I was pregnant, well, one of those ones that you can buy in the pharmacy, uh, I also started feeling a bit funky, uh, like a bit sort of off, a bit dizzy, a bit sick in my stomach. So those symptoms came together and then I went to a proper doctor to actually do a blood test to find out and confirm that I was pregnant. And that was quite early in the pregnancy.
1: What did you do with your practice? Were you still just doing the primary at that point? Yeah, So at that point I was doing primary, but
2: um, I... Really felt tired, so straight away, when I knew I was pregnant, I stopped practicing. And to be honest, even if I didn't know I was practicing, I would have probably thought I was sick because I felt off quite quickly and felt really, really weak and dizzy and really genuinely unwell and had no energy. So it was very easy for me to give up the practice. And because we still had Zeus, our dog, or my partner's dog, he became My really loved dog with a soul connection as well. Um, We started going for long walks together in the morning. So it gave me a really beautiful time to walk with Andrew and the dog in the mornings. And I started a daily walking practice rather than practicing Ashtanga Yoga. And Because I had that substitute and also felt very weak, it felt like a perfect transition to go from practicing the asanas to walking together.
1: It sounds like that was a very organic thing as well, yeah. letting go of the practice yeah. and, and, and finding it fa- practice felt very and something
2: easy. else. Very easy and I I heard of other people who felt it was a lot harder for them to, to stop practicing. For me, because of the setting I was in, I think, it felt really easy.
1: So what was your pregnancy like in general?
2: The first trimester was really hard for me. The second trimester was absolutely beautiful and easy. And the third trimester was a little bit more challenging. Altogether, I would say I had a very easy pregnancy with no complications. But the way you feel throughout the pregnancy isn't always what clinically presents itself right. So the way it felt to me was different to an outsider would have probably seen it. I was generally very happy. Throughout my pregnancy. The first trimester, I literally had zero energy and I felt sick regularly. And of course, morning sickness is something that a lot of people have. I probably felt less energetic than most women would experience. I literally just sitting, walking, breathing felt hard. I felt like all my energy went into producing a baby and I had nothing left for myself. Interestingly or bizarrely, I don't know why. And I don't know how many women feel like that. It really. I thought I was on my way out, really. While I was actually not on my way out, I was producing a new life. But my body worked surprisingly hard somehow at it. After about, and it took a bit longer than it would take for other people, I think. It wasn't until week 16 or 17 where the morning sickness actually left me and I got my energy back. And that was when I was able to return to practice. I just could not even bear the thought of standing on the mat and doing anything more physical in the first 15, 16 weeks. But once I returned to practice, I straight away obviously started with a modified practice. I felt really good. And the second trimester was beautiful. I felt extremely happy. I felt well in my body. I felt energetic again. I felt really, really good. And the third trimester was also very good, but then as your belly grows, it becomes more difficult to move around, sleeping at nighttime, became a little bit more uncomfortable and of course the closer you are then to birth the more discomfort you often feel in your body so the last month particularly was harder again but for most of the time in between I actually felt really good.
1: You wonder if the practice helps? Oh hugely I think. I think you're a lot healthier as an Ashtanga practitioner and then It really does feel like the practice helps make you feel well. Oh, I think
2: so too. I think also the mobility we have through the practice, even before falling pregnant and then going through pregnancy, makes moving around with a big belly a lot easier too. And we are generally, I guess, more accustomed to change and accustomed to even pain, I guess, discomfort, I should say, in a posture. I mean, all of what Ashtanga teaches us often is doing a, posture where we feel really a lot of discomfort and breathing through that discomfort so that was something very familiar that of what well, we all practice in our ashtanga practice on a daily basis breathing through discomfort and then pregnancy is breathing through discomfort a lot of times so yeah in a way it prepares you for it on so many different levels
1: when you went back to practice in the second trimester at 16 or 17 weeks what did that practice look like when i went back to practice in this Second trimester,
2: I practiced at that point a modified or I started practicing a modified primary series. So I would do, to, to make it a bit more explicit, I would practice the sun salutation, Surya Namaskara A and Surya Namaskara B, with the legs, standing legs apart, and stepping probably a little bit wider than uh, you would normally do even in Surya Namaskara B when you step your right foot out and then your left foot out. So I would do everything a little bit more modified to fit in my growing belly and also to feel a bit more stable and supported in the practice. I would practice slower. I would lower down onto my knees for an upward dog and really concentrated more on being gentle and soft and concentrated more on the breath. I would do most of the standing poses. Again, sometimes a little bit more supported because I guess balance is a little bit harder when you're pregnant. Your sense of balance but also the hormones that make your muscles a little bit softer, your joints a little bit um, less stable, um, don't help you with balance. So, yeah, I used a lot more support, I guess, um, in in postures when I needed it. And then once I um, transitioned to the seating postures, there were a lot less postures I was doing, so no strong twists. I would only ever twist into an open twist position, not a closed twist. So I would twist away with my belly facing out rather than close and not very strong twists. I would do forward bends with my legs apart. I would completely drop out postures um, that would require any more strength or um, leg behind the head component, so I wasn't doing kumasana, supta kumasana at that point. Quite a few postures that dropped out. I tried to avoid any compression of the abdominal area and to be honest was very easy to drop that away because it also felt extremely uncomfortable to have any pressure in that area. So intuitively also, I was largely guided by my intuition and also seek the advice of Eileen at that point, although Eileen never had children on her own, of her own. She would know, of course, a bit about practicing pregnant, but I'd also consulted friends who practice Ashtanga and had a child before, what would be good and what wouldn't be good, just so that I knew. And I also had read Yoga Sadhana at that point, um, the book on Ashtanga Yoga, Pregnancy and Women Who've Gone Through This Journey Before. So, I had a general idea on what other people were doing, and then strongly guided by my intuition. Because I also believe there is no clear path. There's recommendations, but everyone feels it differently, and everyone feels certain things are okay in their asana practice and others may not feel these are okay. So while I understand there's there's a huge guideline of what is recommended, what isn't when you go to ask a medical doctor or physician, phys- physiotherapist, there's also your inner guide, I suppose, that tells you, no, this might be okay for most women. For me, this doesn't feel right. And whenever it didn't feel right, I wouldn't do it.
1: So some of the other recommendations are keeping the pelvis balanced, Or like backbending and upward dogs like to back off on those, no inversions, like the lifting up in the vinyasa. How did you manage all of those in your practice?
2: Yeah, I dropped all the vinyasas. I would step, well, I wouldn't drop them, but I wouldn't jump. I would step through because that felt much softer and lighter and I didn't want to produce the same heat in the practice, I suppose, that I was producing with jumping through. So I would step through and gently sit down from the stepping and then step back again. I guess I followed some of the recommendations, but not others. Naturally, to me, backbending felt not right because I felt this strong, almost like a ripping, tearing feeling if I would go back too far in my body. At like the, I felt really restricted in in the area in the front, so backbending never felt that great for me. However, I would still practice. Ustrasana at that point. So I guess what I didn't say before is I would mix it up with some second series postures, the primary that I practice. I would just add a couple of second series postures here and there at the end that felt right for me. Ustrasana in plain English, the camel pose felt really great for me in terms of getting a little bit of opening in the chest without feeling too stressed in the front area. I would also still practice inversions and I know you you mentioned they were not recommended um for pregnancy. However, I felt really great in inversions because it gave me somehow a feeling of space in my abdominal area that I wouldn't have otherwise. So in that sense then I followed mm-hmm. my my intuition more than what is said to be recommended out there. So I would I would uh, practice forearm balances even pinchamayurasana. I would do shoulder stands. Um, headstands as well, that felt great for me. And, again, everyone is a little bit different um, in that regard, I guess, what feels right for them or not.
1: Is that right, that you're not supposed to do inversions?
2: I'm actually not entirely sure. I haven't heard that before, but I trust if you say that that's not recommended, it might be. I think in later, from what I remember now, in later pregnancy, I think as you get bigger, you drop off the inversions as it becomes uh, a little bit more of an issue of instability, I suppose.
1: In terms of the practice, you said you did a little bit of primary and some intermediate postures. Did you actually add other styles of yoga into your your daily practice or other exercises? Yes and no.
2: So I would stick to a lot of the Ashtanga practices. I would still go and do my walking outside of the practice, But when I was practicing Ashtanga, it was more uh, an Ashtanga practice where I would mix postures from the primary series with some postures, very few postures from the intermediate series. I did mainly just go about my own practice either at home or in the studio, feeling and doing what I felt was right, being guided by my own intuition, by the teachers that had given me some information about what they were either doing or what they heard was recommended and by looking at yoga sadhana. And I did a lot of squatting as well as a preparation to birth. Mm -hmm. I had read this fantastic book about giving birth upright in an upright position just to come to when the point came to giving birth. That was the last thing I wanted to do. (laughs) It's so interesting how nothing ever goes to plan when you actually give birth in the end.
1: What What's the book that you read? Let me... Was it active birthing? Or yes, was it
2: active the one birthing. There? That's the one. That's the book, and that made complete sense to me scientifically. Everything that I read in there made a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. The way we build, that we build to give birth in an upright position, um, where we're not leaning on a bed, where we actually create the maximum space for our pelvis to open in birth. Yeah. So that that was my plan. When I then actually gave birth, it all was slightly different.
1: How did your practice change in your third trimester then? And how long did you practice for? I
2: practiced right up until birth, pretty much a day or so. A day or two days before birth was my last practice. As I grew bigger or my belly grew bigger in in practice, um, there was just a little bit less I could do from week to week. So as I progressed in the pregnancy, I would drop um, some of the postures that had previously felt right to me suddenly didn't feel appropriate anymore. And that was mainly then in the later part, it was the inversions that became a little bit trickier to do. And I think in the last month I did drop those ones as well because um, it was a lot harder than to do, let's say, a shoulder stand because there was just not that space anymore. My belly would almost hit my face and I just couldn't quite physically get into it anymore. As I was progressing, I had to let go of, More postures, and um, that was quite an organic nature progress. Where from one day to another, go like, oh no, let go of of that posture as well,
1: of that arsenal. Really good information for people out there to hear. It's
2: it's it's pretty much a letting go gradual i mean it's straight away letting go i guess in the first trimester but then it's a gradual letting go as you progress in the pregnancy if you stick with ashtanga yoga through it of course and for some people that may feel right and for some it may not feel right for me for example i didn't struggle that much with joint instability because i have quite strong joint stability that was never Mm -hmm. an issue i never had any sacral iliac pain or anything if anything i was like maybe this will finally help me to get more opening and more flexibility. So I never felt instable. I did feel that backbending wasn't any good for me, but I've spoken to other people where backbending felt amazing, but they struggled more with joint instability. So I feel that a very important piece of information in practice, in pregnancy, is that it may be very different for different people. And not having a preconceived idea of what your practice should look like and just flowing with what feels right and accepting whatever is right um is really important and and letting go of some level um letting go of expectations and letting go of a lot is really the first preparation to motherhood as well i would say
1: with your you you just touched upon it briefly there that your birth never goes to how you plan so what was your idea of what your birth might look like. Had you planned for a home birth or were you going to go to a hospital?
2: Yeah, so I was lucky once I found out I was pregnant. Here in Sydney they offer a um, really great program where you are looked after by a group of midwives. So it's a full midwifery program where they offer home births, they offer hospital births, but under the supervision of midwives only without a doctor at hand. And if anything, any complications occur, You can basically really quickly, if you're at the hospital, call in a doctor. So there are all these opportunities and possibilities. Because of my age, um, a home birth wasn't really an option. Once you hit 40, they don't really um, allow you to do home births in that system anymore. So I knew I would go to hospital to give birth. And my hope was that I would be with those midwives. And I was with those midwives in the end to give birth. I guess what was slightly different from my plans was that I was induced on my due date and that, again, had to do with my age. They don't like women going over their due date once um, you reach the 40 years of age. They call it advanced maternal age. Um, so I was induced on the due date because, um, yeah, Joe was not born prior to that. Um, I didn't go into labour. So and then – Labor was brought on then, obviously, artificially, which gave me a very rough ride in some ways. But I was very determined to give a natural um, birth, which I was lucky to uh, do as well in the end. And so my plans were largely still met by the fact that I didn't have a cesarean. I was able to give birth in a natural way. But I always considered birth to be something, and probably because I was, or I am, a marine biologist. Um, I always thought I would give um, birth in a bathtub, let's say water birth or something, Um, and then I had read the book on giving birth upright, so my next thought is I'll either be in a water bath or I will be on the floor giving birth upright. But when it came around, the last place where I wanted to be was in a bathtub, and being in an upright squatting position felt extremely painful and uncomfortable. So at that point, the baby was so low, low down already Um, pressing um, down that I just couldn't bear the pain of squatting so I ended up lying sideways on the floor giving birth on the floor in a sideways position really not what I thought I would be doing but I guess at some point I feel still very lucky that I was able to to give birth in that way
1: So talk us through the induction. What were the methods of induction that they used for you? Did they give you the gel or did they do the balloon catheter or how did they start that process for you? So the induction was a two-stage process.
2: One was it was like a hormone strip. It's similar to the gel, I think. They insert you some sort of hormone-drenched little strip and that is only to dilate you so that the stage two induction would be to go and break the waters and give you an oxytocin drip you can hear the little one crying in the back yeah so the oxytocin drip is the second stage and I was only ever given stage one because in apparently only 15% the stage one will kick off labor and most of the time it doesn't and in my case I was quite sensitive to that um stage one so the the local hormones um, did induce my labor in the end. So I went into labor overnight after the stage one of induction and um, didn't realize myself that I was in labor, having quite strong contractions, buzzing for help all the time. I'm like, I'm in pain. I'm in pain. Is this is normal. I haven't been fully induced yet. And it was a public holiday. At the hospital I was in a shared room at that point. Nobody realised I was actually going into labour at that point and they were like, no, no, you're fine. Tomorrow you will be induced. And, yeah, so I went through the first parts of labour without even realising I was in labour.
1: Were you assigned to bed and were you able to stay in your bed or did you have to No, get up? I was actually lying in bed
2: sort of. Yeah, on the side, feeling like I'm, um, it felt like huge belly cramps to me, really, like the feeling of laboring. I don't know how to explain it other than saying I felt like a really bad period pain, I think it felt like. And I, I didn't actually recognize it as being labor at that point. I just went like, oh, this is getting closer to what I think it probably might be like. And it got stronger and stronger and, um, I kept buzzing for, for help. And yeah, I was lying in bed. Um, Andrew was sent home at that point. So he wasn't with me. It was nighttime. And, um, in bed in a shared room with, um, this poor pregnant woman that was actually there for high blood pressure reasons, um, kept hearing me buzzing for help all night. going like, what's going on? And then finally, um, they did hook me up to a monitor later on in the night and then realised I was actually um, in labour and having constant contract- contractions. So there, there was a point when I was given some stronger Panadol, I think it was, Panadol mixed with something else, where they were saying, okay, we have to try to space out your contractions a little bit, and that actually helped what they gave me. So I then had regular contractions by the time the – midwife came in the morning and by the time Andrew was able to or allowed back in at hospital as well which was about seven o'clock the next morning
1: wow so you had to do it
2: all most of it but then there was another stage I guess from that morning seven o'clock the midwife came and the midwife um, looked a little bit confused and quite stressed at the point when she saw me and I was wondering this was a very experienced uh, midwife Um, and I was like wondering why is she so Um, I guess, stressed or out there or um, feeling pressured for time. I was like, um, this is a bit bizarre. And Andrew came. So we changed rooms at that point. I was brought down to a birthing room in the birthing center at the hospital, but um, only with um, the midwife there, Andrew and myself in the room. And um, yeah, the midwife then suddenly started running around in the room, preparing everything. And I was feeling her Russian nervousness and I was thinking this is slightly bizarre because this is a very experienced midwife rushing around like crazy and later on Andrew shared with me that the midwife had given him signs that um, it was very close to me giving birth I didn't realize that at the time but she would signal something like in two hours the baby is there. And surely enough, two, two and a half hours later, the baby was there. So now I understand why she was rushing around like crazy in the birth room. It was very quick after that. So the time I was there with guidance was very short and a long time, I guess, by myself in the middle of the night, not realizing what was going on.
1: From that time, did you just stay on your side or did you get the opportunity to get up and use some of your active birth skills? Yeah, so
2: I I had the opportunity to do quite a few things and now that I'm thinking, it felt like two hours to me. Maybe it was more like four hours in all up because time becomes this really weird factor when you're in labour. I don't know, it just goes out the window. There's really no time for me or the feeling of time has disappeared. So I was first on the bed, I do remember then the midwife checking me, saying, okay, you're about six to eight centimetres dilated. She did end up going in, breaking my water. So at that point, I didn't get a drip for the stage two induction, but I did get my waters broken artificially. I was able to get up then. I would go to the shower with Andrew, helping me through seeing if I would feel comfortable having a hot shower, if that would release the pain a little bit. We were in there for quite some time it felt like five minutes to me but Andrew told me later on that we were there for probably an hour at that point I looked at the bathtub and I was like I'm definitely not getting into that bath for for birth it just (laughs) so strangely even though I love water I love the ocean I love anything to do with water I've just felt this was not the place where I wanted to be giving birth um I was back out in the room I tried all sorts of different positions squatting leaning over being back trying to be in an upright position it felt painful it felt wrong to me at that point point. and again every pregnancy might be different at that point where he was positioned in my body was so low down already ready to come out that it put too much pressure onto my perineum being upright was really painful. Mm-hmm. So, okay, I was back to where can I lie? And I looked at the bed and I had read about giving birth in the bed and I didn't really want to be in a bed. <laughs> so, then lying on, I was given a thin mattress, more like a, almost like a yoga mat to lie on the floor. And that felt like a really comfortable spot. So, I was lying on the floor sideways and that suddenly felt like this was a great place to be. And I felt comfortable there. And that's where I spent the last half. Hour of labor on on the floor in a side position, and um, the other thing that we used was a tens machine. It's one of those electric machines that you can put onto your back with pads, and it hooks up to this electric signal that you can amp up just when you go into the next contraction. And Andrew's um, job at that point was to amp up the electrical current that would go through the machine into those pads every time I would have a contraction and that was actually something really helpful and that was something that got me through those last contractions in the last half hour to to be able to bear the pain because I was also at that point not taking any painkillers, no gas, no epidural, nothing and I found the experience at that point quite intense and quite. Obviously there was a level of pain that I can't describe but also covered up by all sorts of hormones that were going through my body at the time. So I was half there, half not there and somehow getting through those contractions.
1: Sounds like you had a really beautiful support partner in Andrew in the things that he was helping you through and the experience that you had together. I
2: I, I feel so lucky, yes. I've had the most amazing support through Andrew. Um, I couldn't have wished for a better birth partner and also the midwife was extremely um, supportive and helpful. So the setting I was in couldn't have been more ideal and without that setting I think a lot of things would have gone differently. I felt so beautifully supported and taken care of and I strongly believe that that was the reason um, together with maybe just being lucky or maybe my body just being able to to go through the birthing process naturally. There was a phase, I have to admit, which was what they call transition. Um, Usually lasts, I was told, Mm -hmm. about 10 minutes when you some people want to pack up and go home and don't want to do the birthing thing, right? (laughs) The transition when women can get aggressive or not wanting to do birth anymore. I went through transition going like, I need every painkiller on the planet that you have. Give me morphine give me an epidural and a cesarean at the same time (laughs) and the midwife and Andrew just laughed when I was asking for all of that together and they said no your birth plan was different I know you wanted a natural birth and also the midwife frankly said to me look it is too late you're too close we can't even do that even if you wanted to I was basically gently nudged to and supported to keep going with the birthing process even though there was definitely a point in time where I thought I cannot do this any longer and the support of my partner and the support of the midwife made all the difference in that point and I clicked back into, yes, I can do this and, yes, I can get through and I can breathe through and I have the strength and then after transition, it was almost like my body was taking over and... Everything happened without me. All I had to do was step out of the process of interfering, and everything then
1: was flowing.
2: And I, I, I'd say nature is a great thing. And I, if you get to that point, nature does everything by itself.
1: And then Jai
2: was born. <laughs> and then Jai was born, and shortly after, screaming like he just did in the, in the bedroom. Is he okay? He's okay. My partner Andrew is looking after him. And then giving birth was, I guess, because I was lucky to be able to, to give birth naturally, uh, vaginal birth. There was also this big rush of hormones um, that came with it and that feeling of ecstasy and bliss after giving birth, certainly not during the birthing process. The birthing process itself felt very painful, very primal, very much like a cave woman screaming. And the bliss came afterwards when he, he came out. And it was only Andrew and the midwife and me and Andrew then cutting the cord um, a little while after as well. But it was it was very amazing but also very overwhelming that moment, I suppose.
1: So what happened next? Did they put Jai on your chest and did he do the crawl to the boob?
2: Yeah, so what happened next is I was still on the floor, baby came out, midwife helped, Andrew and in the end um, caught the baby and I don't quite know the timing of things anymore but I think very quickly after that the baby was passed and I think the cord was still attached at that point passed onto me onto my chest while I was still lying on the floor there was blood everywhere and there was all that um yellow you know how babies are covered with a with this yellow uh, I'm sure there's a name for it vernix yeah exactly vernix and um so baby on the chest and then Andrew was um told or asked to cut the cord So he did, and then we were lying there for for quite some time, and I do remember the midwife encouraged Andrew to to take some photos if he wanted to as well. And so Andrew saw the whole process of the baby coming out, which um, I, of course, couldn't see from my positioning where I was lying. Yeah, and then there was skin contact for quite some time on the floor the baby wasn't doing a boot crawl at that point. It was just lying there screaming. And then I don't know if I was laughing, the baby was laughing. I can't remember. I think there's no laughing in newborns, but I remember I was laughing. And at some stage, I was helped up to sit on the bed with the baby. The court was cut at that point already. And then um he did the boob crawl and the first breastfeed happened while I was sitting upright with holding him against my chest and that all happened quite natural so somehow babies seem to know right after birth how to get to the boob and how to breastfeed and babies seem to somehow after that first breastfeed forget again how to do that <laughs> yeah. and that was yeah, a whole new story then to relearn breastfeeding But the first feed was happening quite naturally and, again, nature is amazing where I could clearly see that was all happening very organically.
1: Just going back to um, during your labor when there was the pain, did the yoga help you in any way to get through some of that? I think um,
2: having practiced yoga regularly for many years has, has helped me a lot in, in many ways and it's not just the physical ability, I guess, to get into a lot of different positions but it is also the the ability to to breathe through the experience, through discomfort, to keep your mind calm, the meditative aspect of it did help me a lot too, I think. So I knew whenever I think I can't do this anymore, my next thought would be, well, take a deep breath first. So I would take a deep breath and things seemed better after that. And the endurance also that we, I guess, practice in Ashtanga Yoga a lot to go through uncomfortable positions or to keep at it when we feel like we can't do this and not give up, that was hugely helpful. The de- determination that comes with it, I think, is something I definitely drew from the practice and the breath. The breath was very helpful. So, yes, I think yoga on all levels, the physical, the mental, the emotional level really, really helps in the birthing experience. Yeah. And also to, to stay calm in your mind. I feel like there's a lot of overthinking when it comes to birth, prior to birth, because in the end the body does it all. And, of course, if you need interference, then all the thinking is needed and the doctors need there to be there for help. But if you do manage to get through it in a natural process, it's almost like the more you can switch off your brain, the more you can detach from that thought and be in that space where you let things just happen naturally, the body seems to to know what to do and that, that was stepping out of the way. Yoga helped and stepping out of the way when I needed to.
1: I think that's relevant too. Even when you are parenting, I know that first six weeks when you have your baby and they're crying, you really do need to, as you said, like, get in touch with your breath and be in that moment and the next solution sort of presents itself. And even, you know, now, like almost a year on, still relevant, that information, isn't it? Absolutely,
2: absolutely. And the yoga
1: practice, and I know that, like, let's say in an ideal case, you had Monday to Friday and
2: one day on the weekend to practice, observing your moon days and doing everything the way it is Set up to be and meant to be in the Ashtanga um, sequence and the Ashtanga tradition. But I also have learned and felt that a lot of times it is not helpful and it is not healthy also to completely rigidly stick to that because as you fall pregnant, as you give birth, as you have a child, there are so many other factors that are important and family. Is, is one thing that is very important in, in the whole process. And the little one, you actually um, you have a baby that is 100% dependent on what you do. So, of course, you won't drop the baby and go and do a practice by yourself while the baby needs you. So I feel yoga has to be a balance. Yoga has to be breathing through different situations. Yoga has to be something organical that makes your life better Um, not puts another restrictions on to you. It's something that you're given as a tool to make life richer, to make life better, to give you all sorts of options. It really is about knowing when to practice and knowing when to not practice. It is about knowing how much to practice as well. It is about finding the balance. And I think that is the key point that I'm still trying to find and learning And it was a learning curve throughout pregnancy and there's again a learning curve in motherhood is finding that right balance to be a good mother, to be a good wife, and also to be looking after myself, looking after my well-being and the practice also is a part of of self-help and self-care. So finding that right balance so that I can be the best partner and the best mother possible is the aim, I I think, And, and getting that balance right is crucial.
1: In terms of your birth, did you have much recovery? Did you have tearing? Did you have to have stitches?
2: I was very lucky to have no tearing at all, which is quite rare, I heard, for a natural vaginal birth. Um, No tearing at all, no stitches, and everything went smoothly throughout the birth experience. I was heavily bleeding after for quite a few weeks, which I was told was medium-level bleeding, quite normal. I felt like I had lost some sense of control of my bladder. I would sometimes struggle to make it to the bathroom on time. Again, I was told that was all completely normal, but it did take me some time to reconnect to, to all of that in my lower abdominal area and for for everything to come back. Um, in terms of pain, I think I was still quite lucky that I felt very little pain, a little bit sore, but more like bruising It wasn't any incisions that had to heal or anything. But I did feel like I needed a proper recovery. So for the first four to six weeks, I spent a lot of time lying in bed, recovering. Um, I would get up to hold the baby. I would get up to change nappies. And I would get up to do a few things in the house. But I would spend a lot of time lying, recovering, and really taking the time for recovery
1: just finish up, which is um, returning to practice and what that looked like. So
2: I was doing um, some exercises right after birth, 10 minutes walking um, every day, and then 20 minutes in the second week. So the first week, 10 minutes walking, second week, 20 minutes walking. I was also doing some exercises to connect back to my core muscles and the pelvic floor. So Kegel exercises, which I was doing, cons- um, contracting my pelvic floor muscles regularly before birth, I did that. But after birth, that became a really important practice. I had to reconnect to my pelvic floor. Also bringing my abdominal muscles in um, was important. So I was given some small exercises by the physiotherapist to bring in um, and switch on my core muscles, so little um, sit-up crunches that I did pelvic tilt exercises that I did drawing my tummy muscles in and letting them come back out again so small exercises and I would build them up very very slowly at home so it was literally something like 10 pelvic tilts or 10 little sit-up movements like little half sit-ups not full sit-ups, just little crunches on the floor for the first week, then 20 in the second week, 30 in the third week. So I would slowly build it up week after week. I would do my walking. I would do very little outside of that.
1: And I think on your Instagram you shared that you did the first 40 days or observed that fourth trimester. Yes.
2: I, I really highly recommend that to anyone who's interested in doing that. It is a beautiful and wonderful thing to do. And I um, had heard about it and I had read a book on it and I had gone to this wonderful talk by somebody who is a pediatrician and very experienced baby doctor, um, basically Howard Chilton. He was giving talks at the hospital where I gave birth and he also highly recommended um, really, really doing a, a fourth trimester practice of being at home, really taking care of yourself and taking care of um, the newborn baby. And he explained from an evolutionary point of view why that is so important for newborn babies. And in a nutshell, to summarize it, he was explaining how because of our upright walking, we evolutionary are giving birth earlier than any other mammal. So normally mammals would have a gestation period of pregnancy for 12 months. Um, whereas we only have nine months. So the fourth trimester is actually a real thing. That in nature, for any other mammal, the three months after birth, we would actually still have the newborn or the the fetus inside of us. But as we adapted to walking on two legs, bipedal walking, um, we had to give birth earlier because our pelvis had to support us walking upright, so it was closed off. Evolutionary change to being closed off a little bit more to hold us upright but narrow the birth canal so to be able to give birth human babies need to be born earlier to be able to fit through the birth canal and therefore the first three months of a newborn it's a very vulnerable time for the newborn where a lot of neuron connections haven't been formed that in other mammals are formed when they are born so it is a very vulnerable time to really nurture and look after the baby as if it was still in the womb. So that's where the fourth trimester, not only from a very healing point for women, is really important, but also from point of keeping the baby sheltered and not overstimulated and really taken care of to be able to give the protection it would normally have in an animal that would walk on four legs where it would still be inside of the mother's body. So, yeah, very, very important. And Howard children can elaborate on that much better than I can. So I highly recommend his books as well. He's written two beautiful books and has some YouTube um, channels also where you can listen to his information.
1: Yeah, we'll definitely have to get the links to that for the show notes. When did you start back into your practice, and what did that look like? What sorts of things were you doing? So the official
2: practice where I turned up on a mat in a studio was three months later, as recommended in Ashtanga Yoga after giving a natural birth, and I believe it's six months for a cesarean. But I did build up slowly um, at home toward, and I guess the first exercises were those that the physiotherapist had given to me to to bring and connect to my core, and the first. Four to six weeks, I really mainly took rest, to be very honest. I really honored that period. And then I slowly thought, hmm, I wonder what would happen if I tried a sun salutation. And I know officially, you are not going back to the practice that early. But then I was curious. I was like, what would it feel like if I did that? And I did my first sun salutation and it felt horrible. (laughs) I landed flat on my belly. I couldn't even hold myself up in a plank pose uh, of any sort and I'm like that's interesting I just lost my whole practice and there I was going to having to realize letting go is a beautiful thing but then I thought okay so slowly slowly what can I actually do to regain some sort of connection to my body and some sort of fitness so I kept up my little physio exercises and I kept up my walking and I increased the time of walking per day and I slowly increased the exercises and then I was like okay let's try another sun salutation maybe do it like I used to do it by coming down on my knees and I'm like okay that feels better and then can I do an upward dog without feeling strain on my body and yes if I do it like I did it in pregnancy that feels all right so I slowly started again practicing a little bit like I was doing it in pregnancy and slowly bringing it back to bringing my feet together in the sun salutation but I did everything very very slowly. I can't exactly remember what postures I did in which week, but I would say that I spent a fair bit of time just building up some of the standing postures over uh, two, three weeks, I think. And by the time I returned to practice, I was able to then go into a relatively normal-looking standing sequence and half primary probably up to kumāsna supta kumasana i was struggling there a bit because i also had put on a little bit of weight and i was still reducing my weight after birth so um the practice slowly then came became more organized i would say but yeah i was slowly slowly building up to it at home and then as i was turning up to a proper practice i, I made it a more dedicated practice but I would stop at any time. Like in the build-up to that practice when I fully started again three months later, I wouldn't be that serious about it. I would do sun salutation and then stop, and then I would maybe do a couple of standing postures and stop. And And the baby kept me busy as well. So there wasn't anything like a dedicated practice prior to that. It was more like a trying out on what can I do, what can I not do, what does each posture feel like. So it was playing a little bit with it, I think,
1: and feeling
2: what feels right and wrong.
1: From three months postpartum and when you were returning to practice more seriously, did you choose a certain amount of days? Like, was it a little bit more organic? Yeah,
2: so I can't quite remember how I all brought it back together. It was quite organically. Um, I certainly didn't go to the yoga school, yoga shala, six days a week. So I mainly started practicing at home and I would drop into Eileen's yoga shala probably once maybe twice a week at that point when I came back to the practice fully and the rest I was just doing home practice and um, it's pretty much still like that eight months later so I do most of my practices at home and I would once in a while drop into Eileen's yoga shala to practice, practice there but most of the time it is nowadays a home practice because it just seems to be much easier for the baby much better I guess for us as a as a family if I'm at home with a baby and as you can imagine then the practice may look quite different on different days
1: again it's really personal isn't it as to at what level you can take it back and where it you really have to go with your intuition and again really know yourself as to how much you can progress with and finding that balance of am I taking the foot off the gas because it's a mind thing or am I taking the foot off the gas because it's a physical thing and I really need to, you know, maintain my energy for myself and for my – sustain that life of, of your age. Yeah, exactly. And it's
2: it's very much of a situation also in terms of what else is happening in your life. Yeah. And what your partner is doing. So, um, if you have a partner who works from home, maybe it is easier to leave the baby at home and, and you can go and um, go to a place outside from home to practice. But then maybe your partner has a full time job, so it's much more practical if you stay home with the baby and do your practice at home. Or, um, yeah, it just really depends. Do you have one child? Do you have more than one child? What, um, what are you prepared to do with your child? Do you have family close by or not? So in our case, Andrew has a full-time job. I don't have family close by. Andrew's family is in Sydney, but a little bit too far away for, for them to come and babysit or help. So it's really just us. And um, Because Andrew works now Mondays to Fridays. Um, I can't just run off and leave the baby alone and go to yoga school. And I always imagine myself taking the baby with me to school, but now I realize you can't just put him on your mat while you practice and they just watch you and are quiet. No, they interfere, they come and they cry and they have needs and you you better look after them because um yeah, I would feel horrible if I didn't. So the priority suddenly changes to I'm a mother at first. And only if the baby's okay would I allow myself to to practice. And on some days there might be a few sun salutations and on other days by now it might be full intermediate, which I've built up to full intermediate by now, but um, very rarely do I have the opportunity to do the full practice. Um, most of the time at home it is um, something like, sun salutation, standing postures, a little bit of either primary or intermediate, and then if I'm lucky I get some finishing postures in and if not I'm back to breastfeeding or changing nappies or holding him and, yeah, putting him first.
1: Lying down and taking rest at the end of practice. Oh, what's that? That is
2: even rarer. (laughs) It does happen when he sleeps. (laughs) So one way of doing it, and I've I've, – I think one way of having an undisturbed practice is waiting until he sleeps and then practicing. Uh, a lot of times it's a l- little bit later than I would like to to practice. So a lot of times now I do a little bit of a practice while he's still awake and he crawls around. I have sometimes practiced when he's asleep as well, but um, that lying down at the end of the practice would only ever happen if he is asleep. And, yeah, very rarely. So it, it has changed too. Oh, I take all this time for myself to... Suddenly there's very little time for myself, but I'm, I'm happy with it and it's
1: it's a good thing. It's, it's nice. It's challenging at times as well. Challenging understanding and learning your baby? It's
2: challenging on so many levels that I wouldn't know where to start. Like um, somebody said to me, mm-hmm. nothing prepares you for motherhood and I have to say it, it, it doesn't. I think... When you become a mother, you become in some ways a new person where what you thought previously is important no longer is important or can be important because suddenly you have a baby to look after that's 100% dependent on you. So you have to shift your priorities enormously to be able to look after the little one and understanding your baby for sure is a big part of that, learning to understand the baby and learning to meet the baby's needs as often as you can and of course there's a level of where you have to look after yourself as a mother as well because if you're not well you can't look after somebody else so it's that again really interesting balance of finding being in a good state yourself while you spend most of your time looking after the baby so looking after somebody else and I've thought about this this morning when for everyone who has become a mother and who is a mother and who for those women who may not be able to have children or, or don't want children, I guess it's seventh series because it is service to others. So as a mother you you become like you're serving somebody else and of course you can serve others in so many ways without having children as well. Serving communities, serving the environment, serving animals, serving sick people, serving the elderly. You can serve in many ways but or when a baby is born and you're born as a mother I guess you get thrown into serving somebody 24-7 and that's in some ways a very, very beautiful and advanced yogic thing to do but of course it is a huge challenge because it is so demanding that nothing ever I've ever thought of or done can compare to the level of 24-7, non-stop, it hasn't stopped in a one-stop probably for 18 years, right? I mean, you're a mother yourself, you know what I'm yeah. trying to describe. It's I had underestimated that level of uninterrupted dedication to another life that is the most beautiful and the most challenging thing I've ever thought of and experienced in my whole life.
1: You've really captured so many wonderful parts of being a mother and the balance with this shanga yoga and being a mom. And this has been amazing yeah, to a for someone out there. So I feel like I could chat to you for a long time. I'm conscious of the time. So we will start to wrap up. Thank you so, so much for joining us today and sharing your story and all of this wonderful information that I really feel will benefit some mums out there or some people that are going through their pregnancy and are about to become mothers.
2: Thank you so much for having me and i um, very happy to come on board again, talk again, and very happy to for anyone to
0: connect with me on, on any social media. Thanks for listening to this episode. Head to the 7th Series website for more information about Kirsten and the links referred to in the show. To support future episodes of this podcast, please review us on iTunes, or share the episodes on your social media. Visit the Patreon page on our website to provide a one-off or an ongoing donation. Your feedback is important. You can contact me through the website with ways the show can improve or a guest you would love me to interview. I'd like to thank the Ashtanga Yoga community for supporting me in bringing this podcast to you all the mummers i've had private messages with over the years and particularly taylor hunt who provided the right information at the right time to keep the momentum in this podcast please join me again for the next episode of seventh series namaste